Romans chapter 9. And uh, last week we looked at verses 19 through 21 and we saw, we looked at the truths regarding the potter and the clay and God is the potter and we are the clay and as such God has a right to do with his creation whatever he wants and and he, he still reign, that, that truth still reigns and guides and informs what we look at today. You keep that in mind. You, we've got to keep these truths in mind. He's the potter, we're the clay. He's God, we are not. We've got to keep the truth in mind and keep it at the forefront so that we deserve condemnation, do our sin. We do not deserve God's mercy. That God is God, it is His prerogative, He is free to give it out however He desires. And, and that's foundational to keep in mind. God does not owe mercy to anyone. E- even back to what John just read in verses 14 through 18, none deserve mercy. But the point is that because of that, you can clearly say that there is no injustice with God because none deserve it. The very nature, we said, of mercy is that it's undeserved. God is not not withholding anything from somebody that they deserve. The reality is God is instead offering mercy that is undeserved. That's the gospel. And and, and we've got to keep these things in mind. You'll see in your handout, and this is still from last week, because same main point, because this section is just too much for one one sermon, but we're continuing this. As God, you see it in your handout, His freedom includes not only offering mercy as He wills, but the freedom to create as He wills and judge as He wills, all with the end being the display of His glory. Keep that in mind as well. The end result of all of this is the display of God's glory. It is all to the end of making Him known. Same thing we saw last week. These two texts, 14 through 18 and 19 through 24, they're all tied together, all to the end, to the conclusion is this. God has not erred. God is not unjust. God gets to offer mercy however He wants. He's God. That's His prerogative. And we have to trust His character in this. That the end is good, even, listen, even when we don't understand it. The end is good. God will be glorified. That's the end. That God would be glorified in all things. And again, that ties in, well, that's really the whole foundational point of Romans 9. That God is faithful. Again, it ties in, we said, verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Go all the way back to chapter 3, verse 3. People's unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God. That's Paul's point. If people don't believe, it's not because God has been unfaithful. If if, If people remain separated from Christ, it is not because God has been unfaithful. The, the fact that much of Israel, again, Paul began lamenting the fact that much of his brethren were accursed, separated from Christ. And the question becomes, what's God, has God failed? No, it, God has not failed. And we've said this is immensely important because all the promises that we saw in Romans 8 stand on what Paul says here. So again, let's jump into these texts. 
Again, God is faithful to do what he says he will do. He is faithful to carry all things to their appointed end. God's purposes stand. Whether it was Isaac, whether it was Jacob, and even Pharaoh. Listen, God's purposes stand. God can be trusted. That's the point Paul is making over and over and over again here. God is faithful. So let's jump into these next few verses. And let's plumb them for their truths. First truth you see on your handout. Again, building on what we saw last week. Verse 22. God is patiently working even through sinners in order to make himself known. That's the goal. That's what God is doing. He is making himself known in greater ways to his creation. Look with me at verse 22. John, John read it. Verse 22 and t- through 24 is where we'll be today. Verse 22. What if God although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Again, these are uncomfortable verses if we're not careful. If we're not careful to keep these truths all together, we will get out of line real quick in these verses. Paul is looking back to God's interaction with Pharaoh here. Everything we see here is built on what he just said in verses 15 through 17 and his interaction with Pharaoh. Again, connect this to the whole section. People love to just come rip verses out of the context and run off into Never Never Land with them because they don't keep them in their context. You know, that's the point. And and again, Paul is connecting this whole section to Back to Exodus and God's interaction with Pharaoh. God faithfully working, even hardening. That word hardening is a key connector between this section and Exodus and Pharaoh. In in, in Exodus chapter 4, in Exodus 4 through 14, so Exodus chapter 4 all the way through chapter 14, the author of Exodus refers to the hardening of Pharaoh's heart 20 times. 20 times in those 11 chapters it speaks of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And in, that cha- in those chapters, there are three different verbs employed to teach this. And what Paul uses is this interaction between God and Pharaoh and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, and he connects it with Israel in the present day. And he connects it even for you and I today. That God is free as the potter to do whatever he wants with his creation. But he is faithful and it all ends in him being glorified. That's key. Go go, go with me back to Exodus chapter 4. We're not going to look at all all 20 of them. These sermons are long enough. I get it. So we won't look at all of them. I think they're written on your handout in a moment. Much of them are. So you can go back. But Exodus 4 verse uh, 21. It should come up on your, uh, on your the screens there, hopefully. Exodus 4, 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go... Now again, the context, Israel is in Egypt. They're in slavery under Pharaoh. Pharaoh is being very unmerciful to them, making it very hard for them. And, and they want out. And God, and God says, okay, okay. And he's going to use Moses. And, and, and again, Moses is going to be the one who he works through. And Aaron, he says in verse 21, The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power. Listen, 
but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So on the very front end, God is telling Moses, this is what's going to happen. I'm just going to tell you on the front end, just like he did with Jacob and Esau, when they were in the womb, before they had done anything good or bad, what did God say? I'm going to tell you how this story is going to play out. Why? So that I get the glory. So that when it happens this way, you're going to know who gets the glory, right? And, and again, why? And here's the, and, and there's a, this is a whole other sermon real quickly. Go to verse 32, I mean 23. Why, why, why let Israel go? Is it for their freedom or is it God's glory? Look at verse 23. So I said to you, let my son go that he may serve me. You understand why God was going to free Israel? It was not for their own good. Ultimately, it was so that they would serve God. There's a whole sermon there about your salvation. It was not for you to go live however you want to live, live a life all about you, live a life of your glory, and then just go to heaven. It was so that you could serve God as sons and daughters because you couldn't serve God as enemies. It was so that you'd glorify Him. Flip over to Exodus chapter 7. Just a couple pages over, Exodus 7. Go to verse 3. And, and these, are, these are foundational. These are before anything ever happened. This is on the front end. God is telling Moses, this is how this is going to play out. Verse 3. I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel, from the land of Egypt by great judgments. Look at verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, that it is me who is doing this. You see that clearly? The whole purpose in this is so that the whole world would know, all the surrounding nations would know that the God of Israel is a great God. There will be no confusion over, oh, man, that was so nice of Pharaoh to let them go. I can't believe he would be so merciful and let those slaves go. No. We've seen it in Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49. God is not going to compete with you or anyone else for the glory. He's going to work it out so that he gets the glory. Listen, there's a whole, it may be your marriage, it may be your work, it may be your kids, it may be a lot of things that you don't understand right now. Here's the beauty. God wants to get glory through it. You may be facing something insurmountable right now simply so that God can get the glory. That's the why. God's glory. So that everyone will know, me, I'm doing this. God's activity was aimed at his glory even through using sinners in their hard hearts. God is making sure that everyone knows that it's God who is the hero, that it is God alone that is worthy of glory. And, and so we can see this whole interaction. I put it there on your notes. Three things are going on in that story. And I put the verses there. You can go study them later. A, you see three things happening here. A, God hardens Pharaoh's heart and, that is of, and, and of his officials. God does exactly what he said he would do. And I, and I listed the verses there, I believe. Are they, are they on your handout? Second, so God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Secondly, again, remember, we saw that three verbs, three different verbs were used over those 20 times. Secondly, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. 
You see that in 8.15, 8.32, 9.34. Thirdly, you see verses in this Exodus narrative where Pharaoh's heart becomes hard and the initiator is not specifically said. Okay? It just simply says Pharaoh's heart became hardened. All three are going on. What you see here is that before Pharaoh ever hardens his own heart, God tells you twice his heart is going to be hardened. He ain't going to let you go. But understand the why, so that God would get the glory. God's sovereignty, human responsibility, all wrangled up in one big old mess. But ultimately, hear me, God was sovereign so that he would get the glory. The answer to the why is so that God would get the glory in clearly being the hero, hero rather, my southern accent comes in, the hero in, in rescuing the people. We saw that. God tells Moses on the front end. We, we can argue all day over which came first and God hardening and Pharaoh hardening, but this is clear. God said it would happen and it happened exactly as he said it would happen. Why? So that God would clearly be the one that was the hero and the doer. God is, the, God is not, again, even here, people's unbelief didn't compromise the character of God. Paul is showing, and that ties in with the whole thing of Romans 9, of 3.3. Someone's unbelief does not negate the faithfulness of God. Paul is showing that God can be trusted. And yet Pharaoh couldn't blame God. He played a role. He hardened his own heart. But God was sovereign over even the evil actions of Pharaoh, bringing them to their desired outcome in which he told them beforehand, Pharaoh, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he doesn't let you go, so that in the end, my signs and my wonders will be multiplied and there will be no doubt who's doing this. And again, this is in our lives. Paul dealt with this in, in, in Corinthians 12. With the thorn, I implored the Lord three times, take this thing away. What was God's answer? No. Why? So that my grace will be seen in your life as sufficient. We saw it in John 9 with the man born blind. Who sinned? Neither one of them. This man was born blind so that this very moment I would get glory in giving him sight. And here's the point. Here's the point that we've got to get settled in our own hearts. You see it in your handout. God reveals himself as he actually is and not as we hope or want him to be. L listen, we, we, want, we, we saw it last week. We want to be the clay. I mean, we want to be the potter. We don't want to be the clay. We want to tell God how to rule his universe. And when things don't go the way we think they should have, when God doesn't act the way we think we should have, we blame God. We accuse God. And God is free. Paul is saying God is free to do as he desires. But his character guides his, guides his desires. And that's really what's behind all of this in the way it's worded. It's tying it into what we've seen about God. What Paul is, is showing here is the reality of if God acts according to his nature and his will, which he always does in mercy and in wrath, then there can be no reasonable objection to anyone's unbelief.
There's no injustice with God. There's no unfaithfulness with God. He's the potter. We're clay. We deserve no mercy. And yet when God shows mercy, it is for his glory. And, and again, God's dealings with Pharaoh led to the widespread revelation of God's power and his name, namely his glory. Pharaoh's refusal and hardening simply allowed God to work miracle after miracle after miracle, eventually parting the Red Sea. Why? So that the acclaim of God's name would be great. Period. And that was God's whole purpose behind it. Listen, when you look at these passages in 22 and 23 of Romans 9, the common phrase that connects all of it is to make known. Look at verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known? Go to verse 23. And he did so to make known the riches of his glory. God has mercifully made himself known. In God's activities with his creation, it is in order to make himself known. We, we saw that all the way back to Romans 1 verses 18 through 32, God has graciously made himself known so that everything you, you would see him through creation. And what does it say you and I have done with that revelation? We've rejected it. We've suppressed it. We've exchanged it for uh, lies. God's nature is to reveal himself. And that's the goal. God's glory is behind it all. And I wrote this, I wrote this quote down in my, in my Bible. I told you a while, the other day I did a study on, um, a while back I did a study on God's glory and just traced it. And at the end, it, it has this quote. And unfortunately, I didn't write it down. I didn't, you, you're going to know when you hear this. I'm not smart enough to say this. But it's good. That's probably why I didn't say it. And so he, I wrote this down. Listen, 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 to what he, listen to what he says, this author says. Talking about God's glory being the centerpiece of everything. God loves not in a way that makes us supreme, but in a way that makes himself supreme. Heaven will not be a hall of mirrors, but an increasing vision of the greatness of God. Getting to heaven and finding that we are supreme would be the ultimate letdown. The greatest love makes sure that God does everything in such a way to magnify his own supremacy so that when we get there, we have something to increase our joy forever, namely God's glory. God and his glory are the prize. Amen? Heaven will not be a hall of mirrors where we're walking around tapping ourselves on the shoulder about how smart we were and how great we were for figuring God out. Heaven will be an endless, ceaseless Praise of the one who alone is worthy of the glory, namely Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what it's all about. But, but don't miss this again. In the midst of this deserved wrath, in the midst of sin, in the midst of us exchanging God's glory for corruptible things, in the midst of us suppressing the truth, in the midst of us rejecting the truth, Look at God's posture in verse 22 towards sinners, all to his glory. What, what does it say? How does God deal with sinners in the present age? What does it say? What word there describes it? Patient. Patient. 
Even that is an undeserved mercy. Even that is a way that God makes himself known as glorious. Patience. He endured with much patience. Sinners who had rejected him. Sinners who had taken the truth that he revealed about himself and exchanged it for lies. Sinners who had worshipped other things instead of worshipping the creator. You know how God responded? With patience. And even that, again, is an undeserved mercy. You see it in a handout. God's patience and making himself known as glorious is also seen in bringing these sinners, vessels prepared for wrath, to repentance. Why? Because that brings God glory. Again, the goal of God's patience is the salvation of sinners. Look, listen to 2 Peter 3. The Lord is not slow... Uh, yeah, the, the, look at verse 8. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. God's desire is that you would repent. And He's patient. We, we saw this in Romans 2.4. Do not think lightly of God's tolerance, tolerance and his patience, knowing that his kindness, his tolerance and his patience is meant to what? Lead you to repentance. That's what God desires. Even, even through the preaching of this word, God is patiently offering the opportunity to repent. And he's offering it to a people who, apart from God's initiation of mercy, apart from God's patience, will be condemned to their sin. God's patience is an undeserved patience. It is an undeserved mercy. All to his glory. And again, again, back to 9.6, the word hasn't failed. Back to 3.3 of Romans, our unbelief, your unbelief, will not nullify the faithfulness of God. And all of this is ultimately aimed at his marvelous glory. Again, what Paul is saying is that God's patience in delaying the hour of judgment will not only keep the, op- the door of opportunity open longer for sinners to repent, that they would be saved from his wrath, but when that door is shut, it will be more dreadful because of how long the door was open. right? You see the logic? You think all the way back to Noah. How many years did God preach repentance through Noah? There's coming a flood, there's coming a flood, there's coming a flood. Get on the boat, get on the boat, get on the boat. And guess what? One day God did exactly what he said he would do and he closed the doors of the ark. Eight people saved. Patience. But when that door shut, those floodwaters started rising. Can you imagine how much more terrible their rejection was at that point? You can't claim you didn't know. You couldn't claim, Noah, you weren't fair. Noah, you were unjust. You didn't tell us. I did for hundreds of years. You can't blame Noah. Can't blame God. God could have, listen, God could have executed his wrath against sinners and condemned us immediately upon our first sin. And yet God has 
patiently offered mercy at his own cost that you might repent and that I might repent and be saved from his wrath. Even God's patience, even God's current posture towards sinners is an undeserved mercy. It shows the fullness because, again, God gets glory when, when sinners repent. And on the flip side, listen, the longer, you, the longer he waits and the more someone rejects, the worse it is for their rejection, right? And the greater God gets glory for having offered patience all those years. But his wrath will be all the more fitting, right? Because you rejected. And again, tying it into the Exodus and the account of Pharaoh's hardening, active and passive instances prepared here on the wrath side. When you read that in verse 22, what it demonstrate, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and make his power known, endured with much patience vessels prepared for destruction. The word prepared there in the, in the Greek is in the passive sense. What this means is this. If you reject God and His grace, He will leave you in your condemnation. You will get what you ask of Him. He'll leave you alone. And we saw this in Romans 1. Suppress, reject, all those things. And what does it say? God gave them over to what? The lust of their heart. You get what you want. It's passive. Okay, go ahead. God leaves them alone. He gives them what they want. He gives them what they deserve. He gives them even what they ask for. Again, no one deserves God's mercy. If you refuse it, you get wrath. Under, and it's deserved. Whereas, look at verse 23. Those whom are being saved... The word there prepared in the Greek is active. God is acting upon them. God is forgiving them. God is the initiator. God is the doer of mercy. God is the hero. Huge difference you got to keep in mind when you read these texts. Deserved versus undeserved. God's wrath, listen, is sinners getting what they deserve for their sin and their refusal of mercy. Period. They have refused God's mercy. Yet God is faithful even in this. God does what they ask of Him. He lets them stay right where they are. Again, Romans 1. Clear as day. Gives them over to the lusts of their hearts. Gives them what they want. And in that passive way, again, God has... God prepares them for wrath. He lets them get what they deserve. It doesn't mean that God arbitrarily made these people sinners and so that he could just be mean to them. Every sinner is responsible for their sin. We see even in the account of Pharaoh, there's a tension there. God is sovereign and yet Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. We sin. We reject God. We deserve wrath. You can't blame God. And God's patience with you and offering the gospel and offering repentance all is aimed at His glory. And, and we struggle with these, but, but here's the beauty. We ought to take comfort in that, knowing that, that these truths remind us that no 
evil person can upset or thwart the purpose of God. Pharaoh tried to oppose God's will. You know, how'd that work out for him? Not well. I mean, Joseph's brothers tried to do their own thing. We saw that in Romans 8.18. How'd that work out? God took Joseph to the exact spot he wanted to be, even to redeem those who sold Joseph into slavery. Sinful man tried to get rid of Jesus by crucifying him. Guess what? They only did what God had planned to do so that the whole world through belief in Jesus could be saved. Man is not thwarting God's plans. Are we responsible to act in a, in a righteous way? We are called to do that. Yet we will not thwart God's plans. God will get glory. And God's, again, God's mercy is sinners not getting what they deserve through forgiveness and grace. And God actively forgives. He actively adopts. He actively bestows on them an inheritance. That's verse 23. All for his glory. And what Paul is saying is, what if God did this? What if God did this in this manner simply to be a greater display of his glory? You know what Paul is saying? What's that to you? Hey, Clay, why are you questioning how the potter acts? Has God erred? No, he has not. Was he wrong in acting with Pharaoh as he did? No, he was not. And again, the clay and the potter imagery teaches us that. God's mercy is sinners, again, not getting what they deserve. That's his mercy, namely forgiveness. But ultimately, they get to be vessels of his glory, as we'll see in verse 23. And, 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 and he's teaching us here. You know, God, God raised up Pharaoh and patiently endured him so that God's glory would be made known. God has been patient with you and I. So that his glory would be made known. And God patiently keeps the door of the, of the proverbial ark open. There is coming a day just as in Noah's day when that door will be closed. And when that door is closed, no one is going to say, God erred. Because he has patiently endured. And that ought to give us tremendous security. And the point, you see it, is this. And again, this ought to comfort us. The reality that no wicked ruler, no false teacher, no persecutor of the church, including the Antichrist himself, is able to frustrate God's plan to make his glory known. God will be glorified. Even in our salvation. Therefore, we can have ultimate assurance, no matter what we face. That's verse 22. The second point, again, make known. What else does God want to make known? That's 23. God is patiently working, even through sinners, in order to make himself known in greater ways to his creation and to display not only his glory, but the riches, Paul says, of his glory. Not just an inkling of glory, the riches of his glory. Look at verse 23. And he did so, he did all of that. He was patient with sinners. Why? He did that to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for his glory. Again, the fact that God does not simply obliterate us as sinners, nor the fact that he doesn't just take us home the second we repent, is not arbitrary. It's not without purpose. It's pointed at showing his patience. It's pointed at us being vessels of mercy. 
but his patience also increases their guilt. It makes it inexcusable. When God finally judges them, he shows the glory of his wrath and the glory of his power in that, in that the judgment is deserved. And, and this ought to cause us to fear God as a righteous judge. This ought to cause us not to take any of his patience lightly. It's not so you can feel like you're getting away with it. This should cause us to fear him, to repent to pursue holiness. God's mercy is sinners not getting what they deserve in forgiveness and grace and such. God actively, like I said, forgiving and adopting. This is an active in verse 23. It's not passive. It's intentional. It's for His glory. God, God's salvific mercy, even His patience with sinners, is aimed at something bigger, even bigger than our own salvation, namely His glory. And this teaches us how to see ourselves. It teaches us how to see our lives as his children. It teaches us how to treat every single day. It teaches us why 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says what it says. Whether you eat, drink, or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. It teaches us why 1 Corinthians 6 says, Or do you not know that you have been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. Why? Because everything God does is aimed at his glory. Period. You know, as a Christian, you are a vessel of mercy. You were called out of spiritual darkness. You were called out of sinful darkness actively by mercy, through mercy, and for mercy. And John Piper said this, and I, I quote him here on your handout. By, see the mercy as the hero, by mercy, because in our rebellion we did not deserve to be saved. Through mercy, because it was God's patience and other mercies that brought us to Christ. Again, Romans 2, 2, 4, his kindness leads us for mercy because, we, because every enjoyment that we will ever have will be due his mercy. That we would enjoy his mercy every single day. See John 1. What God is doing right now is saving people from sin and wrath due do their sin, and it's all about God being acclaimed. It's all about God being set apart as a God unlike all others. It's all about His glory. This is about Him and His glory. We, listen, you and I are not central to the story and what it is all about. It is not contrary to the songs. It is not about God not wanting heaven without us, but about God making Himself known and glorified. And there's a big difference. Does God love you? Unequivocally. But that, that love is not innate to you. It's innate to his character. That's God loving you. And you see it in your hand now. We must see ourselves and our salvation as vessels of God's mercy and glory. Keep this central. We do not deserve to be Christians. We do not deserve God's mercy. And yet it has been offered through Christ to God's glory. Every benevolent act of God towards sinners is all mercy. Undeserved mercy. Nothing in us warranted that mercy. Nothing inherent to us made, it, made us to be able to make a demand on that mercy. 
the fact that we have received anything good, any forgiveness, any acceptance, any glimpse of his glory, any hope of inheritance, any hope of everlasting joy, all of that is undeserved mercy. God displaying, again, wrath to sinners who refuse that mercy, that is a deserved wrath. And God displaying mercy to those who repent is an undeserved mercy. And that's what, that's what this means to be a vessel of mercy. We are not dead ends. We are conduits of God's mercy. We are to be ambassadors. You see it on your hand now. We're meant to be vessels. Of, we are meant to be vessels of God's mercy in the sense that we are meant to show it off and give it away. I mean, Matthew 10, 8 says this. Freely you have received. What's the response? Freely give. In the way that you and I have received mercy. You know what God says? Be a vessel of mercy by giving it away. And then who gets the glory? God gets the glory. And God gets and is shown to be great in mercy through saving sinners. And the question, again, the question then comes out, even as you read 2 Peter 3, why doesn't everybody get saved then? You notice how we never ask, why doesn't everybody get condemned? We ask, well, why doesn't everybody get saved? Timothy Keller answers this question, I think, in a very good way, a very helpful way. He, he says this, and again, think about this and see God's mercy behind it all, God's glory, rather. If God had mercy on all or condemned all, we would not, we would not see his glory. I don't think Paul is giving us much more than a hint here, but it is a very suggestive hint. For the biggest question is, if God could save everyone, why doesn't he? And here Paul seems to say that God's chosen course will in, will in the end be more fit to show forth God's glory than, other, than, any, than any other scheme we can imagine. The answer is this. Why didn't God save everyone or why didn't God condemn everyone? Because God gets great glory. He gets greater glory. Listen, and, and it's a silly illustration, but, but think about this. I, I have, I have a, a couple of master's degrees. All that means is that I'm overly educated. I mean, it's, it's paper on a wall. Listen, if, if the schools that I went to, if they just gave out master's degrees to everybody, what happens to the value of my master's degree? It ain't worth anything. And if, and, if, and if all of us just, ran, if all of us just magically get saved, I, I agree with Tim Keller. Somehow that doesn't glorify God the same as his chosen course of action. And in our minds, we would say, no, it doesn't. But it doesn't. And even if it never makes sense in our minds, it don't matter. Because he's the potter, we're the clay. For whatever reason, God has chosen this course of action. Not everyone is going to receive his mercy. And that's on them. And again, it's kind of like a movie. You know, movies don't always make sense until you get to the end and you're like, oh man, now I can put those pieces together. Now I understand. Listen, in the end, it'll make sense. In the end, Paul says it again in 8.18, these present sufferings are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us. There is coming a day where even your suffering is going to make sense. It'll all make sense. And again, this mercy, God's mercy, shines even brighter against the backdrop of wrath towards sin. 
And it's not possible to see God's glory as brightly if there is no wrath towards sin. And you see it on your hand out there. Everything goes back to God's character and his glory. God gets glory in this chosen course. Again, it's not like we would have done. It's not what we want to think about him. But again, that's not the issue. Seeing that God is faithful, seeing that God's ultimate purpose is to bring him glory, which is mind-boggling enough, but not only glory, the riches of his glory. And because God is who he is, he does what he does for his glory, not ours. And this may not fully solve the mystery, but it maybe, but it maybe isn't meant to. It's maybe meant to simply let us say, God is God and I'm not. There's an otherness. Even, Paul says, verse 24, the salvation of the Gentiles. That's you and me. Again, don't think for one moment that God is giving people what they don't deserve outside of the mercy that he offers. The wrath towards sin is deserved. Listen, you see it in your handout. God's wrath is deserved upon sinners who refuse the gospel and God's mercy. And it's undeserved upon sinners who receive Christ through faith. Period. And God is glorified even here. Because he is enduring with much patience sinners. He is offering the gospel. The door of the ark is open. We don't know how long it's going to be open. And just like Noah in his day, preacher of righteousness, day after day after day, our job is to preach the righteousness through Christ and to offer, come in the ark. Come in the ark. And in Noah's day it was faith, and today it's faith. And so application, I want to bring this home and, and help us to see a few things out of these, pa these passages. Again, really drawn from everything we've seen in, in Romans 9. First one is this, if we are to have a certain security in our salvation, a certainty about it, God must be ultimately sovereign even over our salvation. Because God is freely offering mercy to whomever he desires, there is certainty, there's surety. We're not performing, we're not earning it, we're not warranting it. God is the active doer. Be amazed. And yet we're still responsible creatures. You can't blame God. You, if you refuse the gospel, you get exactly what you deserve. And that confronts us. We hate it because, again, it dethrones you and I. There's a tension there. Leave it alone. But God is sovereign over salvation, and therefore we can have certainty and security because it wasn't about Chris. If I didn't do anything to earn it, that means I'm not going to do anything to unearn it. God freely gave it when it was undeserved. Therefore, he's going to keep it. Secondly, we must constantly wrestle with the fact that we are not worthy of the mercy of God and do not deserve it. Listen, constantly wrestle with that fact. And I dare say the reason we struggle with what Paul writes here, it simply shows that we struggle seeing ourselves as unworthy. That's why we struggle with this passage. We, we, we put ourselves on the throne we saw it last week, all throughout history, Israel's tendency, our tendency is to reverse the roles. I become God and he becomes the servant. And deep down, we believe 
that at some point we deserved salvation, or at the very least, we didn't deserve hell. And those are wrong statements. We're not worthy. And we've got to avoid a couple of evils here. One, we looked at last week, thinking that we're smarter or more merciful or God, that we would have done it better. I mean, you think this through. Think this through. When God was wronged by His creation, what did He do? He offered sacrificial mercy through the death of His Son. Keep a note of this. This week, when somebody cuts you off in traffic, what do you do? Listen, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it ain't sacrificial mercy. So here's my point. You and I wouldn't have done it better than God because our lives prove that we didn't do it better than God. When God was sinned against, he crushed his son that whosoever would call upon the name of the lead Jesus would be forgiven of their sins, that their sins would be separated as far as the east is from the west. We would have never done that because we don't do that. The entirety of my 43 years explains that I don't do that. So we wouldn't have done it different. The clay is not wiser than the potter. The created thing is not wiser than the creator. And and what must cause us pause and cause us wonder and cause amazement is not God passing over Esau, but God choosing Jacob. That's what ought to amaze us. We should not be amazed that anyone goes to hell. We ought to be amazed that anyone goes to heaven. God's severity and His justice towards sin should not amaze us. His grace and His mercy should amaze us because it's undeserved. Again, God didn't save me because or you because he saw something in us that was worthy or warranted or needed by God. It was all mercy. All mercy. By grace you have been saved through faith and not by works, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, lest anyone would boast. What we've got to realize is that, again, Isaiah 64, 6, even, even my deeds done in righteousness, it says, are filthy rags. The best that I have to offer is still marred and tainted with sin. Motives. All these things in my mind. and all, you know, Listen, our own lives attest to that. So instead, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. God says, it does not depend on the man who wills and runs, but upon God who has mercy. We just saw that in verses 14 through 18. This mercy originates in God and His character, and therefore it's secure. And our story takes a dramatic turn as believers because of the mercy of God. And all glory goes to Him. Lastly, the third application is this. And there's a grammatical error here, and I forgive me, I caught it last night, and it's too late. But we must not let our limited understanding of some texts, that too should probably be crossed out. I don't think that goes there. We must not let our limited understanding of some texts prevent us from obeying clear commands of Scripture and other texts. Here's what I mean by that. And specifically pointed at these verses. We will begin to see clearly in chapter 10. We'll see this clearer. But God's sovereignty was never meant to reduce our responsibility to obey His commands. 
The sovereignty of God was never meant to increase laziness, encourage slothfulness. It was never meant for us to sit back and just say, you know, whatever happens, happens. Listen, here's what I, here's what I know. Prayer works. Here's what I know. Sending missionaries works. Here's what I know. Preaching the gospel works. Here's what I know. Obeying works. We spend all day arguing over these tough passages, and here's the problem. We don't ever go out and do what God has clearly called us to do. And A.A. A. Hodge, I like, I like hard quotes. A.A. A. Hodge, he was an American Presbyterian, and he was the leader of uh, one of the early leaders of Princeton Seminary uh, back in 1800s. Listen to what he says. Does God know the day you'll die? Say yes. Has he appointed that day? Can you do anything to change that day? Then why do you eat? To live. Right? What happens if you don't eat? Guess what? If you don't eat and die, listen to what he says, then if you don't eat and die, then would that be the day that God has appointed for you to die? Hey, this is what he says. Forgive me. This is the hard part. Quit asking stupid questions and just eat. <laughs> Eating is the preordained way God has appointed for living. Right? Did God harden Pharaoh's heart or did Pharaoh harden his heart? Yes. Do people respond to the gospel based on the sovereignty of God or do they respond by hearing the word of faith? Yes. Yes. Listen to Romans 10, 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they, how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. God is sovereign. And you know what he's given us, graciously given us the opportunity to do? To be a vessel of mercy and sharing the gospel and seeing people repent of their sins and be saved eternally from the wrath of God. Amen? Does that happen sovereignly? Yes. And you know what God has sovereignly ordained? That it happens through the preaching of the word through his people. And here's the problem. We can sit in these rooms and we can argue. And here's the bigger question. When's the last time you shared the gospel? Because it's a whole lot easier for us to sit in and argue and look real smart and theological. You know where the rub meets? Go preach the gospel. I, I would dare say, you know why many of us leave charmed lives and nobody, everyone leaves alone? Because nobody knows who we are. You know, we're not, we're not confronted with things. We're not, we're not persecuting any of them. You know why? Because we're not preaching the gospel. Go graciously say the hard things to your coworkers and classmates and your neighbors in love and see how, see how they respond. It ain't always going to be pretty. And see, these, these statements here in Romans 10, verse 11, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Those don't matter anything to us. You know why? Because we're not persecuted, because we're not doing what God's called us to do. Here's what I know. Where the word is preached, people repent. I don't, need, I don't even know how electricity works, I, but I switch those lights on. Like, I don't know how my car I don't know how it works, but you know what? I put the key in the ignition, I turn the key. I do know that. Right? 
And you don't need to have a seminary degree to realize that God has ordained for, the, for, the, for us to be vessels of mercy. Go preach the gospel. Go be ready in season and out of season. Set apart Christ as Lord in your lives, always being ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. And do it gently and respectfully. And what I do know is this. 1 Peter 3.15 will never happen until 1 Peter 3.14 happens. And you decide that you're here and that I'm here to please God and not man. That's the context of 1 Peter 3.15. Until we decide who we're here to please, none of this stuff matters. And in 3.14, God is chastising, he quotes Isaiah 8.12, and God is chastising his people for being afraid of the same things that the world is afraid of, even though they have God on their side. Has God promised to never leave and forsake? Has God promised that greater is he that is in you than he who is in the world? Has God promised that you're an overcomer? Has God promised that nothing can separate you? Do you believe that? We can waste our time haggling over these things and not do the simple, clear thing that God has said. Go share the gospel. God, here's what I know. God has sovereignly ordained faith to come through the hearing of his word, and he has sovereignly charged his people with the proclamation of that word. He has sovereignly spread the, all of us out all over this area to be ambassadors, to be missionaries, to be soldiers, all to his glory. And the challenge here is keep sharing, keep obeying, no matter the cost. And God's sovereignty ought to free you to do that. If you, if I, I've, I've had to tell myself that before. You walk away you're like, man, I wish I'd have said that, or man, I wish I'd have said this. God's sovereignty covers that. Doesn't free me to say, oh, well, God's going to do whatever he's going to do regardless, so I'll just keep watching football. That ain't the sovereignty. That's not the point. It's to go be bold as lions, knowing that we have a sovereign God at our back who's for us and not against us, who wants to see people come to faith. 